Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today, as I always am, and I have a great guest for you. I am sitting here with none other than Michael Hine, and Michael is the CEO of the HFW companies. And he is uh, someone that I connected with. I got introduced to him by John Bray and a few other folks at the Zui Group. And they had said, you know, you really need to talk to Michael. He's doing some amazing things with the HFW companies out of St. Louis, especially in the area of mergers and acquisitions. And they are doing, they're doing so well that they actually just received a new ventures award from Zui Group. And they that award will officially be conferred upon them at the Elevate Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada this September, which is just one month away from the date that we are recording this episode. So the 14th through the 16th at the Green Valley Ranch Resort is as uh, will be the Elevate Conference for Zui Group. And hopefully Michael and, and some of his team will be there to receive this new venture award. But today we wanted to just talk with Michael and find out what's in the secret sauce that he's cooking up there in St. Louis and and having such success in this area of of acquisition and of, of mergers and acquisitions in the design industry. So without further ado, I want to welcome Michael to the podcast. How are you doing? Uh, Randy, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And I appreciate um, that really warm introduction. Just as a side note, I wanted to share when we were just introducing ourselves, Randy and I are both cyclists and we do charity rides. So that's a a big part of how I like to give back to the community and I'm glad Randy you feel the same way. So- Absolutely. Yeah. No, you know, I was looking at your I was looking at your profile on LinkedIn and I saw that you did some um rides the, the MS Street team and, and and I know that they do uh, multiple sclerosis does a lot of 
charity rides throughout the country, as does the American Cancer Foundation. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of programs and a lot of ways to raise money for events that are near and dear to your heart. And just about every athletic endeavor, cycling is one of them. And so that's something that's that's an interest that I think we both share and feel very strongly about. So I may not ride as much as you ride on a weekly basis, but I, I get out there and ride. That's for sure. Yeah. And just one last thing, you know, as, and we'll talk more about, you know, how we onboard firms and how we work in the MA space. But the one thing I find out real quickly with the firms that join us is, are they involved in a cycling charity event? And then I sign up. So I will be doing an MS ride in Austin <laughs> in April. Um, in this, ac- actually, October, I'm doing cool. a ride for cancer in Augusta, Georgia, on top of the rides that I'm Oh, nice, doing. nice. Okay. All right. Well, we'll have to, I'll have to put that down and I'll have to look that, that ride up. I do, a, like I told you, I do a ride for kids for cancer in September, every September. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, Michael, I've had a number of my friends in the design industry, because I've been involved in this industry since 97, uh, that have given each year that I've done this ride. And so I really appreciate those that support me when I when I do make an announcement, typically on LinkedIn and some other places that I'm going to be doing these rides. And so it, it's nothing like rallying around a cause to really make a difference. So it, it's very cool. It's very cool. So let's let's start off now. I, I would love for you just to kind of share your superhero origin story. Before you became a titan of M&A, you actually cut your teeth as an architect. And I saw that you went to the City College of New York where my yeah, mom really? went to school and got her master's. Really? So I, I thought, yeah, because I'm originally from New Jersey. So I, I know the city. I used to go over there at nights when she would take night classes at the City College and just a, an, an amazing school. But, uh, but you got your, your Bachelor of Architecture there. I'd love for you just to kind of tell the audience a little bit about your superhero origin story and about your background in design. Okay. So um, I did have the wonderful opportunity to go to City College. Max Bond from Davis, Brody and Bond was the dean of the school at that time. And when I went up to City, I wasn't sure if it was the right place for me. But after just the introduction to Dean Bond and the story he told me, I was hook, line and sinker interested in going to get my bachelor and then my master's of architecture at City. Um, so I'm very proud to be one of the steady yeah. sons of City College. It was a great moment in my life. And I had already 10 years of construction experience. And then I took a break for uh, about a two-year period. I worked part-time, but really in, you know, enveloped myself in the program, got registered quickly, um, had a lot of great opportunity in New York City working for Bayer Blinder Bell. They were and still are one of the premier preservation firms in the nation. And I was fortunate to be part of some really great projects. The original restoration of the Grand Central Terminal in the 90s, early 90s, worked on the Japan Society, just just a tremendous amount of really interesting and exciting projects. I felt like for the three years that I was with Fire Blender Bell, I gained 10 years of experience because of the depth of their projects. I also spent quite a bit of time with Jacob's yeah. Engineering Group. And that's really, I think, where I learned the best business aspects of the industry. So from small to large, of course, Fire Blender Bell has grown significantly as well. Yeah. And you were with Jacobs in the Green Bay, Wisconsin area, as well as uh, St. Louis for a right. period. Is that right? Yeah. So I supported in our Wisconsin group, I supported process engineering uh, projects, pulp and paper, 
more on the industrial side. So the buildings that I did for Jacobs at that time were really more technical and less about the aesthetic. So when you're putting a an enclosure around a large paper making process, the interior environment is more harsh than the exterior environment. There's humidity, chemicals that are very dangerous, and uh, noise issues. So it was more about a technical building as opposed to something that really was, you know, aesthetically pleasing. It was a machine cover, but I enjoyed doing those technical yeah. projects. And then I transferred to St. Yeah. Louis in so 2009. It- Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. And that's where you've been since then in St. Louis. Right. I am a a proud citizen of St. Louis since uh, 2009. Okay. And so after Jacobs, you were, you worked at two organizations and finally ended up before you were at HFW, you were the chief operating officer at KAI Design and Build there in, uh, in the St. Louis area. So it's, I know at some point you made the transition from running projects and programs to deciding that, you know, in your heart of hearts, you wanted to run organizations and and to drive value by creating new connections and collaborations. And so where did that part of things come about for you? Where did you get that desire? You know, my father was an entrepreneur. He was a Mason uh, as a profession and started a family contracting business as a Mason contractor. And I had aspired as a young man to follow his footsteps, but the economy of 1981 just wasn't supporting that. So I went on to work for a larger general contractor that had you know, sustainable work. So that desire to be an entrepreneur was early in my mind, but then I followed the path of professionalism and got my license. And I think everything that I've ever done on my resume built up to this point where working with my two partners, Matt Westfall, the COO, and Dan Ferguson, our CFO, sort of just led us to this point in time. And we're grateful because I do think, and we'll talk more about it, but the pandemic did help us in a lot of ways, even though when we first stepped into it, it was terrifying. The the way that it slowed the world down was just enough for us to catch our breath and fine-tune you know, our pitch and our business plan. And then once things opened up after the stay at home, shelter in place orders were lifted, we were, we were much more confident and ready to go. So would you say that the objectives of your business plan were accelerated because of the pandemic or, I mean, how were like pre, like say pre-March 2020, were, were you guys on this same arc that you're on now, or do you think the pandemic actually accelerated things for you? We had started in January of 2020, and we had spent time prior to that, you know, putting our business plan together um, in the evenings. You know, our plan was really based on everything we experienced, Jacobs and, and the other companies where we were, you know, tangentially or deeply involved in an acquisition. Uh, my part mm-hmm. was generally always on the integration side, where at Jacobs, they would bring a large company into the fold. Um, being an operational leader, it was my job to introduce the culture to those new employees. And we just picked up a lot of lessons learned and put our plan together. What I think really helped with you know, the impact of COVID was, again, that there was M&A already building in terms of a trend. But it slowed things down just enough for us to, once we launched in January, it gave us 
almost six months of sort of additional prep and practice, if you will, so that when we did really launch and start meeting with capital providers and interested engineering and architecture firms, we were ready. We had caught up with everybody else. Wow. So, I mean, how would you relate me? Everything that you've done over the years, and and, I mean, looking at your background, you know, you've had a wide and varied background. You were in construction, you got your Bachelor of Architecture, you have a master's in urban planning and architecture from Cooney at the the University of New York. And I mean, you've had a lot of different experiences. How did all of that kind of shape your approach to M&A? in the design industry space. And did you ever think that you would be at a place like you are right now doing what you do when you started back in the 90s coming out of City College? You know, I had always aspired myself as being the technical architect, not so much the designer, although I, you know, I did develop design skills being in college, but I was more drawn to the technical approach. How do you determine how the pieces and parts come together to keep out the environment, to provide that shelter and comfortable space. Um, so I saw myself, uh, you know, possibly owning my own firm, which I did for a very short period of time. It was like four and a half years. But now, you know, again, having joined Jacobs and learning so much more about how to really operate a firm and the, just the exposure to the depth in, of knowledge and the resources it opened my mind up quite a bit. Having that experience at that large firm level and then working for smaller firms, I noticed the gap. Small firms don't have the ability to reach back into the company and get help. They have to find their own way to solve it. They can't reach uh, into the Jacobs directory and find a peer to talk with that they can share their concerns with. When you own your own small business, you don't call up your competition and ask for help. It's not, it's not something that's normally done. So all of those things really were the culmination of how we put our business model together for HFW. And you know we are focused on bringing small to mid-sized firms together as part of a network. We focus on allowing them to keep their culture. So their brand identity is really important and that stays. They don't become HFW. Um, the, the firms that are partnering with us now, Miller Leg, HSQ Group, Cranston, and Forward, their brand stays in place. We do not change that. Their culture that they built um, with all the people and the resources, that all remains. We do not go in and operate their business. We really act as a growth partner for them. And that's really where the model is gaining a lot of steam. And that model would be different than the traditional model of, you know, just acquiring a firm and bringing them into the fold of a, of a larger company, if you right. will, where, you know, two become one, right? And, and all of a sudden right. you merge cultures, you merge a lot of the identity with the company that's making the acquisition in, in this case. Right. In most cases, when a full integration is done well, it's very successful. But in a lot of cases, that full integration is not always well-planned, is not always well-thought out, and it's very disruptive to primarily the staff, right? The owners tend to get their, um, their buyout and, and eventually will move on, but it's the staff who invested their time and effort to join a particular firm 
it becomes a decision point for them when they are they learn that they're acquired and they're no longer part of the organization that they joined. Yeah. And, you know, w- and without you giving away all the secret sauce, right? Because I know you, you have some stuff that you guys are doing that you want to try to hold close to the vest. I get it because you've kind of stumbled upon something that works really well for your approach to acquisition and mergers. But I'd be curious to know for the companies that you mentioned, has the sentiment or has your approach been with those leaders in those companies that, you know, we really do want you to stay on for as long as you can and and not, you know, not necessarily we're creating a golden parachute approach to this, but we would like you to be a part of of what we are going to create in the future with this connection. Randy, that's a great point. So we really do focus on retaining that tier of leadership at the helm. But we also help provide that transition to bring the next level of leader up to the table. So part of our model is really based on having rolled or retained ownership. Certainly, HFW will take a controlling interest in a company, but we like to set aside you know, the appropriate amount of ownership, that, e- and each firm determines that based on their needs and their interest in wanting to grow. But we want to talk to firms that see themselves as needing help to break through whatever ex- existing ceiling that they have, and then taking advantage of the synergies that you gain when you can share work with other member firms. You can strengthen your portfolio by teaming with a, an internal member firm. You know, and on those days when you wake up and you have uh, more work than you plan for, you can reach out to another office and bring resources in to help. And the same works for the day you wake up and you have more people than work. You know, you can <laughs> you can share and, and and spread those resources across the other member firms. And we're fortunate because that's already happening with the four current member firms that we have in HFW. And that's really not a model that we've seen before. You know, it's an advantage that large firms have, but small firms have never had. So that is really uh that's one of the main points of our value proposition. You know, we are focused on leveraging their brand and their legacy. That's really important. Firms like Cranston and Miller Leg, and they've been in the industry for over 55 years. That's important to the brand, the people who founded the company, but the community has recognition and trust in those companies. We don't want to lose that, but we do want to provide them more opportunity to grow and the opportunity to gain those synergies that the large firms have by working together with the other member firms to operate and compete at a much higher level. Yeah. You know, and I'm curious to know, since you've had some time under your belt with getting, you know, incorporating these firms that you mentioned specifically, have you then gone back and maybe polled or inquired some of the base level staff of those organizations to kind of get their feedback on the actual process of, you know, the acquisition and how things have have worked out. I guess what I'm asking you is what kind of check-ins have you done to kind of check in on everybody to say, hey, are you okay? Is everything good? Was this what you were hoping for? Not that they can change anything instantly like that, but I would assume that feedback, that kind of feedback is important to you. Yes, it is. So it almost starts with the the day one introduction. We spend a lot of time 
fine tuning the message based on what the current leadership team understands as the pain points for employees and what would would really put fear in their minds of this change. So on that day one, when we meet with the entire staff, the feedback that we get, and this is consistent with every opening day, if you will, for us, is that people will come up to us and say, you know, we really trust so-and-so, the owners of the, of the company. And if they decided that and made the decision that working with HFW is the best path for this company, then we trust them. So the one marker we do follow is attrition. And there have, you know, in the four companies that have joined us to date, we have not had one person leave the company because they were dissatisfied with the direction that the company has made. And that's pretty significant because usually within a few months, a a second tier leader will up and leave because they don't see the opportunity. So we're proud of that metric and we strive to continue that because that is part of our value proposition. No disruption, minimum disruption. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Most people that can't, that are listening to this, they can't see my expression. But when Michael said that nobody had left, I was like, wow, you know, I, I can't, you know, that's, it's unfathomable to me that you guys are having that kind of success. But I mean, it, it doesn't mean that that's not, it's not happening like that. I think what uh, the biggest takeaway that I hear is that obviously the folks at HFW are really going through the proper planning and the due diligence to make sure that these acquisitions are going to make sense and that everybody's on the same page, right? Because I'm sure that you're a firm believer of managing expectations at the beginning, during the process, and then when the process is actually complete. So how do you go about managing those expectations besides the the day one event? Because that's once this all has happened. So the first and one of the more significant expectations that we have is the current leadership teams of these member firms have the autonomy and do still run the day-to-day effort. What we do on a frequent basis, and we've, we've been rolling it out at different levels, and we call it the zipper effect. So we start with our finance teams. We, again, do not run their accounting, but it's important for us to measure and track how the businesses are doing against the plans that we've developed. So the finance people from HFW meet regularly with the finance teams from the member firms. And that's a, a call that everybody participates in for you know an hour to an hour and one half. We have now just recently rolled out the principals call where myself with the CEO presidents of each of the member firms will spend a good 90 minutes going over an agenda that's very specific, looking to discuss any of the key issues that you know they feel are very relevant to their business at the time as well as the forward looking you know what's what's ahead that you know is it a recession is it a boom economy is there a new industry that we need to be supporting so we're going to be addressing those kinds of very forward looking issues so that we're in position so when there is the next disruption and there always will be another disruption we'll be you know prepared for it and we can respond yeah. And I, I, you know, I always said that, uh, you know, when there's a, there's always safety when you have a number of counselors around you, right. And you're not just 
operating with one person. So you, you know, maybe yourself as a leader, you're like, you know, I need to bounce these ideas off of somebody else. So you guys have that safety in all these different leaders being able to chime in and share their thoughts. Right. You know, there's an entrepreneurial spirit because a lot of the folks are still their founders of their companies or they're the third, maybe even fourth generation of leadership, but they all have a level of, you know, knowledge base that when you can tap into it and share, you know, your experience and how you may have addressed a problem, you can learn new things, right? There's always a, somebody always has a better practice than the one you have. Yeah. Now, are you guys able to, just by virtue of the size of these organizations, are you leveraging just the simple operation side of things in terms of purchasing and kind of taking advantage of some of those aspects? Or is everybody still autonomous and they kind of do their own thing when it comes to that? Well, that's a a very phased approach for us. So there's a lot of easy things that we can do quickly. And that would be to look at all the types of business insurance. I'm not talking benefits, but general liability, Mm -hmm. professional liability, directors and officers, you know, EPL, all of those, you know, we are, we work to bundle those up quickly. So there's an economy of scale, you know, soon we'll be looking at rolling up software platforms so that Autodesk and the different types of software that we use primarily for design are under one contract so we can, you know, manage those licenses much more practically. And then eventually we will, you know, work toward providing possibly better benefit plan under one umbrella, but that's a a longer term goal for us. But yeah, definitely we focus on, you know, those economies of scales, being able to purchase at a much larger scale so that there's a a savings per unit. Yeah. So what's next for HFW? I mean, what do you guys, how big is your core team kind of the, the overarching team of HFW and, and where, where did everybody come from that's currently working with you? Okay. So right now, HFW at the, if you will, corporate level is five employees and that's Matt, Dan, and myself. And then mm-hmm. we have two people in our finance group, a director of finance and a director of accounting. In terms of our expansion to bring on more staff, we are looking to bring on a leader of operations. So that would be at the executive mm-hmm. vice president level. And that person's role would be to really help drive the synergies between the companies and to help identify those scales of economy. Where can we bundle? Where can we save? And then help fine tune as an advisor, how to fine tune business operations, like project management, best practices, all the other things that, you know, that 1% improvement from the sign of the back of your uh, wall, you know, is where all that that yes. benefit comes from. <laughs> I like that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, get 1% better every day is, is my mantra. I, I live by that. So just incremental growth. That's all you got to do. So, well, okay. That, so that makes sense. My other question would simply be, and, and this is something that I'm curious to know how you guys are dealing with it, but one of the the biggest pain points in this industry is recruitment and retention. How is that playing into the acquisition process and how you guys are approaching it with each of these individual companies that have become part of the bigger consortium? Yeah, recruiting staff will be a challenge going forward for probably the next four or five years. You know, we're going through the phase change of 
boomers exiting, but there's a lot of talent coming into the market with millennials and, and then the Gen Zs. And we will look to tap that market because that is, you know, they're, they will be the largest source of, of talent in all industries in the next coming years. We do work with recruiters. We are posting more on a, a national level, all firms through LinkedIn and other sources. It's still, you know, it's not easy to find good people, but we believe that the cultures that our companies have are attractive and people want to work for that middle market firm. Not everybody is cut out to be part of a large, you know, 70,000 person operation. Some people like to be in a more cohesive team environment. Yeah. It's almost like you were able to kind of take the best aspects of like a Jacobs and incorporate it into the framework of what you guys are doing at HFW, right? Because Jacobs is huge. AECOM is huge. Yes. I mean, those are, like you said, there. there's a resource for anything that you could ever need. But at the same time, there's a gajillion people there too. So <laughs> therein lies the challenge. Right. Yeah. I think that that goes in line with the, you know, my thought that for Matt, Dan and myself, and I think that goes the same for Angie and Michelle, our two other employees, that, you know, everywhere we've worked, we've taken, we've learned and we've taken it forward. And Jacob's provided me great opportunity. And again, exposure to processes that I would have never, in my mind, put together. But being exposed to that and then making, you know, quality something that's very repeatable because everybody in the company is following those procedures to the, you know, to the extent that makes sense. The outcomes are positive. And that's really what we're trying to bring to our member firm network. They have the ability to be their smaller, cohesive company, but be able to reach back into the HFW network to share resources, to learn best practices, to improve, and to share the things that they do well with others. Yeah. So, I mean, man, you you guys, you really, you know, you hear the expression, you don't let any grass grow under your feet. You haven't. I mean, literally in two, two and a half years, you guys have really made some inroads. What what are you hoping to accomplish in the next two and a half years? What what challenges have you laid out for yourself that you hope to achieve? Yeah, so we um, we're not done yet. Our vision is to build you know, what we call this house of brands with our limited integration strategy, and you know we want to partner with architecture and engineering firms, helping them grow, and their growth provides growth for HFW. But in the near term, it's over the next several five years or so, we want to grow to 15 to 20 member firms. And that's just our first hurdle. HFW is not a company that was put together to flip companies. You know, we really do see ourselves as creating an enduring company with a long runway. So that's really the first phase is to get to that, you know, 15 to 20 firms. From there, you know, we'll expand our geographies and keep growing. That's the intent. Interesting. What kind of feedback have you gotten from some of your peers in the industry? Have you gotten any, has it been mostly positive in terms of what you're trying to do? Or other people have said, man, you know, Michael, I, I thought about doing that. and You guys are executing it perfectly. What, what kind of feedback have you received that is actually fuel to your fire to keep pushing forward? You know, now that we've established ourselves, you know, we're, 
I think we're beyond that startup mode where, you know, we're in the growth mode of our company. We are getting more interest from firms that we originally spoke with during the pandemic and early on. And they were like, we really like what you're doing, but we're conservative. You know, why don't you come back and talk to us when you have a little more experience, when you have another firm behind us? So we are making traction in that arena. And, you know, I, I, at this point, I have to always give Miller Leg credit because they were, they were the firm that had the most courage, right? They believed in what we were yeah. doing and they signed up as the first firm. And there was no synergy for them at that point, right? There was just hope that we would bring on additional right. firms. So I'm always grateful for Mike Kroll and the Miller Leggers who have made that commitment to join HFW because that really was a, a very catalytic moment for us. Things started yeah. to really develop after. Yeah, because you know, I know, I know a lot of smaller firms feel like there is such a consolidation taking place in the industry. You know, is there going to be a place for us, right? And I, you know, what's your response to smaller firms that are kind of feeling that pressure right now? Yeah, you know, this trend has been going on for a long time. You know, the consolidation—it's happening in every industry. It's more prevalent now in the AE space where companies are are doing more acquisitions. You know, there's there's going to be large firms. There's going to be niche firms. You know, as in one extreme. So I think that for the the folks that want to continue to grow, um, and they've hit that ceiling, maybe they're at that fifty to seventy five person operation, and they know they need to scale up with HR, and they need more finance people, and they need they just need more expertise on staff to manage and run the operation, you know, I think they will see HFW as a very attractive offering for them. And they still get the opportunity to own and run that business the way they intend to run it. But now they have a lot more guidance, a lot more leadership support around them to tap into. Yeah. So, and I have two more questions before we close out. Would are any of I'm just curious, are any of these firms that you brought into the fold of a HFW, are any of them ESOPs? No, they're not ESOPs. So okay. yeah, we, okay. we are not in that ESOP realm for our business plan. You know, our, our okay. ownership. All right, that's is, I was just curious. Is you know, we allow ownership, but more in a traditional plan. Okay. Where, All right, know, that makes the, sense. The folks yeah. Who drive the business have the desire to own, you know, a part of the business and then gain, yeah. you know, with that risk and they gain the reward. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I was, I was curious about that. And then you, you said that Dean Bond had told you a great story, which was really what got you into jumping into the program at City College. Do you remember that story? What, what stuck with you about that story that so moved you to decide that to enroll and, and get your uh, your degree in architecture. Yeah. So when you're in New York City, you know you think of Columbia and Pratt and all of these high level design schools. And when somebody, a, a friend of mine, had suggested I go and talk to City College and understand what their program is about, what Dean Bond said to me was, you know, you have ten years of work experience. This is the perfect place for you. All of our professors are graduates of Yale, Harvard, Columbia. They're going to teach you how to be, you know, a practicing architect. And looking at their curriculum, you know, it wasn't just about design. Obviously, in any architecture program, design is the major platform. 
But I was excited because there were courses in mechanical systems, plumbing, you know, electrical systems. I had at least three courses that touched into structural engineering. Certainly, I'm not trained to be a structural engineer, but we were trained to be able to size a beam so that when we went and talked to a structural engineer, they wouldn't come back and say, well, you know, Mike, you can't use a six-inch beam to span 100 feet. <laughs> you know, So we were in the, in the right game yeah. there. I, I was proud that when I graduated, I was able to sit for the exam quickly, you know, two years after and get my license, you know, in, in a very expedited time frame. And I think City College provided that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good story. I, I, you know, that's one thing that we talk about a lot when I go around and do training in the design industry and I, I train engineers and architects. And we're always talking about what are the areas that you come out of school not prepared for? It sounds like when you got out of school, you were, you were prepared to start well, practicing architecture and, and yes. And in the nineties, you know, AutoCAD was introduced, but it hadn't really yet. Well, I think it was revolutionary at that time for 2D design. You could do 3D, but it wasn't, it wasn't real easy. It was more clunky. Right. Um, but I insisted that when I graduated, that I had the ability to operate AutoCAD because that's what everybody was using. And when I went to work for Buyer Blender Bell, that was the first thing they recognized is this person has experience, but he also knows how to do AutoCAD. And I became... I wasn't the IT person, but I quickly became the person that everybody came to to learn the special little scripts to make things go faster. And I enjoyed that. So that, that was another piece that City allowed yeah. me to do my design work in CAD. And they offered AutoCAD courses so that, that I had that particular skill because it was very valuable. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And that, that's, that's what you call making yourself indispensable. So you know, people want to have you around. <laughs> so. Well, man, this is this has really been great, Michael. I, I appreciate you kind of peeling back the curtain, if you will, to give us the, the insider's look at, at HFW. I mean, you guys have kind of come on the scene pretty quickly, like I said, in just about two and a half years and have really not let any grass grow under your feet and are, ha are, are having significant success, the least of which is, is uh, marked by this new venture award that Zwei Group is conferring upon you at the Elevate Conference taking place in uh, Las Vegas next month, September 2022. So I want to congratulate you for all the hard work. And I know that, that you, even, you have even harder work ahead of you, both you and the rest of your team, to try to continue maintaining what you have, but then also going after some new opportunities that may present themselves for you in the future. So I wish you nothing but continued success and luck. And if anybody listening to this is really moved by what you're sharing or maybe wants to just chat with you, or what's the best way for people to connect with you and reach out to you? Randy, my email is always one of the easiest ways to get in touch with me. So it's very easy. It's my name. I do go by Mike, but my email is michael.hein at hfwcompanies.com. And we'll put that in the show notes too, so that everybody can get it. And I'll also put a link to Michael's uh, LinkedIn, well, to Mike's LinkedIn profile. So you can check him out and just check out his background and experience. And HFW has been featured in Business Wire and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of other magazines and, and a lot of other articles have been written about them. So you definitely want to kind of do your homework and, and see what these guys are all about and, and learn a little bit more about the process that they've undertaken to have such 
a level of success in a very short period of time. So Michael Hine, thank you so much for for joining us on the Zweig Letter Podcast today. We really appreciate it. And if you do end up in Las Vegas, I look forward to connecting with you and meeting you in person. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Randy, you're very welcome. I appreciate your warm approach toward our introduction and the, the questioning and, and everything and how it played out. It was uh, very enjoyable. And we are grateful to Zweig for awarding us with the new venture in 2022. So thank you very much for that as well. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more info about Zweig Group's advisory services or any Zweig Group publications, visit zweiggroup.com. And remember, you can subscribe to the Zweig Letter Podcast wherever you listen to it. And please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you with another episode soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.